Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey everyone. This podcast is brought to you by the Classic Learning Test, a classically based alternative to the SAT and ACT, which is the fastest growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 130 colleges now accept the CLT, and many of these colleges have endorsed it as their preferred college admissions test. Students benefit from same-day results and can share them with colleges at no additional charge. To learn more, head over to cltexam.com. Again, that's cltexam.com to learn more or to register. Welcome to The Plays The Thing, the Julius Caesar series. This episode is covering Act 5. I'm Matt Bianco, and I am here with Heidi White. Hey, guys. And Brian Phillips. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for joining me, or thanks for letting me join you, whichever. I'm not really sure who's in charge here. We're joining you. We're in your group. Sounds good. You're the leader. Since I am the one in charge of hitting record or not hitting record, I guess that does kind of make me the You're leader. doing really great on that job, by the way. <laughs> this is our second time recording this podcast. Really, Heidi? We had, to, we had to say that? We had to tell the whole world that I forgot to record yesterday when we recorded this? But this or one didn't record will this? have a conclusion. <laughs> this is so great. I'm excited. My friends are so wonderful. <laughs> We're the best. <laughs> the best friends. Okay, Act 5. Let me ask the most important question. It's the same one I asked yesterday. <laughs> Based on what we talked about in the last episode with respect to Act 4, how people just don't bother reading Acts 4 and 5 because all the best stuff happens in 3. And it really does feel like the end of a play when the character for whom the play is named has died. There's no need to go on. But last week, we kind of decided that Act 4 was worth reading, in fact, was essential or important to the play. How do you guys feel after having read Act 5? Oh, I I love Act 5. I really enjoy the second half of Shakespeare's plays, even though in general, they peak in Act 3. 
but I really, I, I love seeing how all the threads that he throws out in acts one and two, the first half of the play, how they kind of climax in act three and then um, become, you know, woven into the tapestry of the work of art, if we're going to use that metaphor. And in act five here, we really see that there's a resolution, but then there's also just this beautiful ambiguity in this act that I'm sure we'll dive into uh, in our discussion today. Beautiful ambiguity. That's mm-hmm. a hashtag. <laughs> it should. It should. I think Act Five is definitely worth reading. Um, it's and and for the reasons that Heidi mentioned, because of the structure of the play and uh, the way it brings resolution to some things, but it still leaves you with um, that that typical Shakespearean tragic ending. You know, a, a stage full of dead bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the comedies end with a wedding, the tragedies end with a stage full of dead bodies. Um, the, the particularly tragic part about this to me, though, is that we're still left without the full resolution of who the hero was and who the villain was. Um, and so I think it makes it particularly tragic because in the end you have, well, uh, to focus on Brutus, who, as as Heidi mentioned in a previous episode, this play really could be called the the tragedy of Brutus. So he dies, and you're left really not knowing. I mean, is is he a hero with a tragic ending, or is he a villain with a just ending? Right? Mm-hmm. You know, did he get what was coming to him? Um, so because of all the ambiguity that we've talked about through all of these episodes where you don't really know should the conspirators have killed Caesar, I know people have strong opinions one way or the other, but it's really not something that can be proven. You know, it's not, right. um, it's not an easy question. There's no one line you're going to find in the play that says, right. and Brutus died the hero's death, or Brutus died the right. enemy death. Or whatever, right? Yeah, right. and even, even the way Octavius responds to his death just makes it even more confusing. It's another masterful moment yeah. from Shakespeare that we'll get to in that scene, of course, but Octavius finds Brutus dead and then talks about how he should be buried with honors, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, buried in a noble fashion, the noble Roman fashion. I, so, yeah. That's my difficulty with act five too. But I mean, what your, your phrase there, Heidi, the beautiful ambiguities, and then just what you've been describing, Brian, act five is worth reading and it's and it's a good read because it's so enlightening with with respect to the characters like you get to see more you learn more about them by seeing these interactions that they have with one another with their friends with their enemies the way they talk to each other the way they respond to certain behaviors or certain actions certain things um all of which we'll you know we'll discuss this afternoon but but also it's really frustrating because it doesn't it because of those ambiguities right because the book is the last line of the book is not and he was the bad guy mm-hmm. right so then you're still you're still left with you're still left with this um not really knowing like having an opinion having a belief mm-hmm. you know, wanting to side with one character over another but not really knowing if if shakespeare himself would agree with you or right. <laughs> whoever. So um, I think I think Act Five is, can be frustrating in that way, and and it's and it's it makes this play very different from other plays where you know, for example, 
the nature or who Macbeth is, what right. kind of character he is, who the good guy is in that play, who the bad guy is. Um, same thing with Lady Macbeth. You know in Othello that mm-hmm. what kind of man Iago is, right? Mm-hmm. But you but you read Julius Caesar and that's not there for you, right? That's that sort of clarity, uh, which of course is, I think, to be praised, right? Like, right, of course. Like, sure. yeah. Shakespeare's not writing a fairy tale, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's, he's putting a really, really hard question in front of us that, that, that the world has wrestled with forever. Not, I mean, I don't mean right. just Julius Caesar and Brutus in particular, but this idea of, you know, assassinations and rule and governance and loyalty and uh, patriotism um uh statesmanship right. you know yeah. and it, it's putting those questions in front of us and then it's showing us how hard that question is to to answer it's beautiful right. really, for uh, that very reason absolutely and that's why i think it's so important to teach this entire play if possible uh because there is you know Brian i think you talked about this in uh in great detail last week in our act four discussion. So we don't necessarily need to dive deeply into this again, but that um, in, in reading this whole play, you get to see not only the converse, the rhetoric that leads up to the assassination of Caesar. Um, what, you know, is it, is it butchery and murder or is it a sacrificial act to the gods in order to save Rome, right? So that that question can be examined simply through the rhetoric of the first half of the play. But in Acts 4 and 5, we see the consequences of the actions. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is... And then, and then the play ends again with this stage full, as we've said, of, date, of dead bodies. Some of them have this, you know, complete arc of character that's, you know, I would say Cassius's arc of characters is completed in, uh, in Act 5. Um, but there's other characters that seem to die senselessly, and that happens a lot in Shakespeare's plays. You see, you know, uh, uh, Matt, yesterday when we talked about this, you talked about Cordelia and King Lear, right? There's this, this senseless violence in that uh, loss in that play but Lear had to die right in order to make the play work and like we have some of that here in act five of Julius Caesar that there's some of these senseless deaths that seem to be completely meaningless speaking to the you know the nature of bloodshed and um, and war and uh, perverted love and friendship and all the themes of the play Um, and then there's these deaths that are uh, that tie up the play so beautifully that, that that the story and the narrative simply would not work without them. And that's kind of part of Shakespeare's genius in contemplating what you brought up, Matt. Um, who is the good mm-hmm. guy? Who is the bad guy? You can pick a lane, but it's going to continue to be debated. And that's what makes it fun right. to teach and fun to study. Right. I mean, unless you find the 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 one irrefutable proof, as I did last week, Right, unless, unless right. you yeah. find that which hasn't been found yet in scholarship. So, but right. it has been found in, <laughs> in the Play of the Thing podcast. <laughs> Weird how all these other scholars Still are missing a debated it. point. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I don't. I feel like the poll is going to swing in my favor any moment now on close reads. There's. Are you creating a bunch of fake Facebook accounts? 
Is that okay? Moving on. <laughs> um, act five, scene one. Padding the ballot box there. <laughs> Stop it. Um, okay, act five, scene one. Let's go through the acts because yeah. the other thing that you you were hinting at, Heidi, is that the the reason acts four and five are so necessary and so important to read and to our understanding of the play is because they are the other part of the chiastic structure that we talked right. about last week. And I think it's, I think it's, um, I mean, that's going to probably going to be the bulk of what we're going to be seeing here in act five that really makes act five stand out as such an amazing um, part of the play for us is seeing those connections back yeah. to act one, right? right. Uh, or the, you know, the other part of their chiasm. So let's, let's go through the act five scene by scene, I think, so that we can, I mean, so that we can see what's going on in the scenes, but so that we can see these, the other parts of these chiastic structures, mm -hmm. right? Right. Sound I think good? that's a great idea. Yes. Would it be worthwhile to talk about chiastic structures just briefly? Uh, Brian likes putting people on the spot with hard questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you want to ask her? Well, about that but or? the audience won't know that for sure unless I do it when it's actually being recorded. Yesterday. <laughs> so, because um, someone who shall remain nameless didn't hit the record button yesterday after I hate that guy, <laughs> the guy who didn't hit the button. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yesterday, Matt, I hate him. No, I, I do think yesterday, it's helpful because um, we were we were talking in. Well, we didn't go into great detail with it in previous episodes, uh, but but I know Heidi mentioned the chiastic structure or chiastic structure. I've heard it both ways. I don't know. Me too. I say chiastique. That's true. French. Classicist. It's French. Yeah. Um, so Heidi, could you, uh, this is really hard to do verbally. I know because it's a visual structure. Um, it's kind of a, almost of a mnemonic device in, yeah. uh, or memory device. Uh, do you want to try to explain what a chiasm or what chiastic structure is? Sure. Um, I, I would love to do that. So, and actually Shakespeare is a great way to verbally talk about it if I can't, you know, map it visually like I usually do with my students uh, because Shakespeare's plays are structured uh, in five acts. So um, a chiastic structure is a literary technique uh, for structuring narratives. So if you imagine yourself mapping out a story you're writing or a paper you're writing, you're going to jot down a, a visual structure of that um, on a piece of paper before you write. And as Brian, as you brought up, it is a, uh, most scholars think it was an aid for memorizing in oral traditions. Uh, so it helped people be able to map it in their mind so that they could say it. Um, so it's most often used in ancient literature. Homer uses chiastic structures. The Bible uses chiastic structures. Um, so it is hard to describe verbally. Uh, so uh, we'll ask our listeners then to kind of visualize this. Think of it as a visual map or shape of the narrative. So the easiest way to imagine it is if you imagine the story plotted out on a triangle, one, two, three, three, two, one. Um, 
So that three is the, the point of the triangle. And then you have the building action that leads to it and then the declining action after it. So in a Shakespeare play, the, the main turning point, the climax of the story typically happens right in the middle in act three. So you have acts one and two building up to it. That's the first part of the chiasm. Act three is the peak and then it declines. So the second half mirrors the first half. One, two, three, three, two, one. So, so forward with, pair up with two. Five yes. Number one. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, now that isn't always completely. Uh, in 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 this play, this is almost a perfect chiasm, uh, and so that's why when we talk about this, the structure of this play being fairly straightforward to understand or teach, it doesn't mean that the themes and the content isn't very complex because it is. Uh, but Shakespeare structured the story so that it's fairly easy to find corresponding scenes. For example, Act mm-hmm. Two, Scene One, the garden mm-hmm. scene, corresponds with Act Four, Scene Two, uh, which is another scene that takes place tonight. We talked about it last week, um, and they have those same kind of ideas of Brutus being up, having insomnia, and um, him having kind of an internal dilemma, and then something comes from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see that the, those two scenes mirror each other on either side of Act Three. So that happens over and over again in this play, and in Act Five you see it all come together. So that's why today we'll be talking some about that. How these chiasm, this chiasm kind of resolves itself, even though the the content's still very complex and mm-hmm. ambiguous. If anybody wants to look it up. It's it's chiastic or chiastic C H I A S T I C or C H I A S M for chiasm or chiasm, and the the key part of it the the he C H I is from the Greek letter the he like the Cairo or whatever the the X because it's the part of the X it's half of an X huh. that makes yeah. the, yes. the struct the pattern. Yes. Wikipedia has a pretty good article on it. So you can even just look it up there. It's, it's not bad. There you go. You all now have permission to go read the article <laughs> yeah. from Heidi White. At least, <laughs> at least for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That yes. one that yeah. one article. Yeah. That one thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and as, as you go scene by scene, it's it, it's easier to to think through. If you're looking for this sort of thing, which I've I've I think several of us uh, in the Cersei world have, have been encouraging this for a long time now, but it's been kind of a soapbox of mine to listen for echoes is, is the uh-huh. way that I usually put it, that um, what does this sound like? Does it remind you of something that happened previously in the story or maybe in another story? Um, and mm-hmm. um, I think if, if you do that, particularly in Act 5, you'll start to, to see very clearly how Shakespeare is using certain circumstances in the play and and characters and lines to tie to, to tie the um, the play together and not not saying that he was necessarily a slave to that form but you can just see the mirroring or the echoing of yeah. of previous things. It's not super mathematical either, right? Like right, like Act Five has five scenes. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that Act One has to have five scenes and that they have no. to, scenes have to no. match up perfectly. Yeah. Nor does it mean that if Cassius did something in Act One, then Cassius has to do that same thing in Act Five. That's right. not right. either, right? But there's no. a, there's a relationship between the two yeah. where they illuminate one another, and we learn something about those things. Um, I think. Well, you okay? So back to yesterday, Heidi. Yesterday, you mentioned that sometimes Shakespeare will give us a scene that we don't 
make it doesn't make sense to us why it's there, mm-hmm. like sin of the poet. Yes, um, exactly. And but but if we if we take that and we find its counterpart in the chiastic structure, then often that scene now makes sense for us because and 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 not just because oh he put this there in order to have the chiastic structure, but right. by putting it there, it illuminates or informs some our understanding of the first encounter we had with that. That's the other side of the chiastic structure. Right. And that side of the chiastic structure informs this part of the chiastic structure. Right, the, exactly. The, the two uh, opposing or opposite scenes, mm-hmm. right? Right. That's okay. why it actually, it sounds a little intimidating at first to think about Shakespeare or different forms of literature in terms of chiastic structuring. But once you get the hang of it, it it actually makes it easier. Because then as you're teaching the play or reading the play or then when you come across something that doesn't seem like it fits, seems kind of random or out of the blue, uh, something like, for example, uh, in Act 4, when the poet comes and mm. tries to resolve the conflict between Cassius and Brutus, it feels like it comes completely out of the blue. But if that does indeed chiastically kind of correspond to Artemidorus, who uh, in Act 2, who, or excuse me, Act 3, right? Is Artemidorus in Act 3 when he's bringing the, the letter to Caesar? And yeah, he's trying to save his I think life. At the very beginning of three. Yeah. It's yeah. an appeal to love, right? That's what Artemidorus is doing. I am I am your lover, Caesar. Uh, and, and so I'm trying to save you. That's exactly the same message as the poet who is coming to resolve the conflict between Cassius mm, and Brutus. Yeah. In order to save your lives, I'm appealing to love. I am. And so mm. once you start mm. looking for those threads, those echoes, then you start to see these things and how they correspond. It, it actually provides meaning. That form, that formal element uh, pro- provides an, another level of meaning to the play, um, which, you know, as we're doing the contemplation of form, the national conference this summer, there's a preview of my talk. So uh, how, how structure and form um, well weave into a work of literature in order to create meaning uh, that, that is really important for the text. I want to make a commercial for my talk at the <laughs> Okay. Let's start talking about <laughs> that, cosmology. Yeah. That, was, that was well played, Heidi. I'm really, I'm really yeah. impressed with your skill there. <laughs> um, by the way, guys, come on. <laughs> okay, Act Five, Scene One is it starts out with Octavius and Antony talking about um, the, the, that that Brutus and Cassius's armies are approaching and how they're going to respond to that, and then um, and then there's a parlay between. The conspirators and mm-hmm. what do we call Antony and Octavius? Not the not the anti-conspirators. I don't know. Um, anyways, between the two groups, followed by Cassius and Brutus having a conversation as a response to that. Which, mm-hmm. coincidentally, the way chiasms work, sometimes you can have mini chiasms within mm-hmm. a piece, right? So this yes. this scene itself could be there could be a chiasm between. Octavius and Antony's conversation and Brutus and Cassius's conversation with that mm-hmm. culmination of the parlay in between, right? At the sure. middle point. But anyways, that's just a possibility. I'm not saying Well, that. at the very least, their counterpoints, counterparts put together right. as contrasts to each yeah. other. Yeah, good point. So mm-hmm. so what jumps out at you in, in scene one here that um we need to we need to think about further? Well, near near the beginning of scene one, when Octavius and Antony are are talking. Uh, they're discussing Brutus, Cassius, and and their army, 
meeting them at Philippi. Uh, one thing that I noticed is that, again, we have a glimpse into the conversations between Antony and Octavius, and there's conflict. Uh, line 19. Okay. Uh, they're, they're talking about battle strategy, essentially. And Antony, after Octavius has posed some ideas, Antony says, why do you cross me in this exigent? And Octavius says, I do not cross you, but I will do so. <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> right, right. Um, it's, it's, it is foreshadowing in the sense of the, of the conflict to come between Antony and Octavius mm-hmm. at, well after this plays over. But it also, um, it gets complicated to me because as I'm, it, it sounds so much like conversations between Brutus and Cassius earlier. Where yeah yeah it, and it, and it could be maybe I'm reading too much into it but it could That's simply good, right? be a matter of advice offered advice rejected mm-hmm. which could just simply be a theme like a running theme in this yeah, play yeah. I mean it's it's everywhere but um, here again Anthony showing that he's really short tempered for someone who was so masterful so controlled when he needed to be you know he's he's also quite short-tempered at times. But, oh, that's so yeah. good. That's really true. Well, and again, we have that, as you you just pointed out, which is true, that idea of the of not receiving advice, right? Nobody actually seems to consult anybody and ever learn from anybody else. They just yeah. are right. charging ahead, claiming to be for the good of Rome and making mm. some bad decisions along except the way. For, except for Caesar, who listens to, was it Decius? That convinces Did him to he? Go, yeah, says, maybe. And yeah. says, hey, go to the Senate. It'll be great. They're going to offer you the crown. Oh, oh, but what isn't there a parallel then between hmm. Caesar listening to Decius and Cassius listening to Brutus? Yeah, maybe. Oh, right. Philippi, they both march to their death. Yeah. So you don't listen to advice and it gets you in trouble. You do listen to advice and it gets you in trouble. It's like, <laughs> was it right. Proverbs, Proverbs 26? Yeah, <laughs> where Solomon gives that contradictory advice about answering a fool. Don't answer. Yes, a fool according, according to his folly, folly right? Lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Like, well, right. which is it? And yeah. the answer is yes. Yeah, it, it really. requires discernment, right? But yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good. And okay, so along those lines, then that uh, that next scene. Um, or the parallel within that same scene. This is all 5-1. When Cassius and Brutus are talking and um, Cassius is talking about how it's his birthday. And, uh, and then I do want to talk about this scene. I, or this little, this little part right here. Um, When Cassius and Brutus talk about changing their minds about their philosophies Mm-hmm. And I want to hear what you guys think about this because what Cassius says, um, this is line 70. It's actually, I'm going to pick up on 71. This is my birthday. That is a bummer to die on your birthday, by the way. As this very day was Cassius born. Oh, and Shakespeare and I share a birthday. My birthday is April 24th. His was probably the 23rd, but I like to think he was born on my I was born on his birthday. Yeah, but those are different days, Heidi. I know, but they... Between April twenty third and twenty fifth. Hmm. Oh, 
Right. Completely this is my birthday. I like to think of myself as being born on the same day as Jesus. I was born January 19th, but I like to think of it as the same day anyways. Mark Twain. I, my, my argument is far more compelling than yours, though. <laughs> Mark Twain died on his birthday. So did, did you, Cassius. Did you know, did you know that, did you know sure, that right? Mark Twain was born and died the day that Haley's Comet appeared? Now we're back to omens in the heavens. and Oh, right. Yeah, that was completely my point. Yes. I just meant was- it as a fun fact. <laughs> That's why people log on to the show to listen for fun facts fun that facts. have nothing to fun do with facts. what we're talking about. It's a new podcast. <laughs> I love that. Fun yeah. facts with Ryan Phillips. What were you saying about Cassius? Yeah. What about Cassius? Okay, the, the, the so to get back to Julius Caesar. Oh, look, I, I forgot to hit record. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. Go. Right? Go. Go. Yes. <laughs> Listeners, this is my life. All right. This is my birthday. As this very day was Cassius born, give me thy hand, Masala. Be thou my witness that against my will, as Pompey was, am I compelled to set upon to set upon one battle all our liberties. He doesn't want to fight this battle. He's been convinced by Brutus. You know that I held Epicurus strong in his opinion. Now I change my mind and partly credit things the due presage coming from Sardis on our former incense to mighty eagles fell and there they perched. So of course in classical, classical times they considered birds to be omens and the actions of birds. So what he's saying here is I was an Epicurean. I thought that there, if there were gods at all, they didn't care about the affairs of men. But now I have changed my mind and I do see that potentially these birds are in fact an omen uh, that that indicates the outcome of our battle here. Um, so as he's facing death, he's changing his philosophy. I heard an intake of mm. breath as though somebody had something wise to say. <laughs> Is it a fun fact? I <laughs> No, it's coming from me. So if it's from me, it's a not fun. Nope, fact. just Matt. Um, no, I, I just i I think what you're I think what you're pointing out here is obviously super important. I just think it's cheap. Huh? How so? Like, well, it's like it's like oh man, I got to do something I don't want to do. Oh look, here's something that proves that I'm right to not want to do it. Huh? Right, the signs. This sign proves that I was right to not want to do this. Now, now I suddenly believe in signs. Oh, I don't. I don't think that's what. Oh, that's absolutely what he said. I'm basically quoting him. (laughs) (laughs) What addition do you have? Uh, No, I. I I think it's far more complicated than that. I think Cassius is now realizing that, in all likelihood, he's marching to his death, and. That clarifies some things, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it it his life is flashing before his eyes, right? Um, to use the common saying, um, hopefully it's not cliche. But, so deathbed repentance. Well, I think it, at the very least, if we're right that Cassius was being intentionally manipulative or sophistic mm-hmm. before, before, then now he's realizing that. Um, maybe he should have thought better about these things. He's talked Brutus into doing something that now has had consequences that Cassius does not feel ready to receive. You know, he doesn't want these consequences or he never imagined it would reach this point. So yeah, as he's facing death, I think 
things are becoming a bit clearer. I I like reading. I, I like reading caches that way. I, I like I like. I like thinking of Cassius as a very well-developed figure who goes through, who goes, who ha- who is at some points very, very impossible to sympathize with, and at yeah. other points very, very possible to sympathize with, right? Like I like seeing him as, I mean, just because of his own cycle of life, right? I mean, his own way of going through this crazy thing that's happened to them, that that he has fallen on both sides of the equation um but i also simultaneously think this particular passage right here this very passage that we're reading from cassius that begins with this is my birthday and ends with ready to give up the ghost could be read both ways like i could if i want to sympathize with cassius i can read this and think here he is facing death and he has great clarity mental clarity spiritual clarity etc and if i think that cassius is a jerk, I can read this exact same passage and think, yeah, of course he changed his mind because now it suits him. Now it, huh. fit, it fits his ability to, to disagree or to, to say that he, why he disagrees with, with um, Brutus. I think huh. it's just another example of the way Shakespeare mm-hmm. writes the characters and allows us to, allows us to um, learn something about ourselves in the process. Yeah. Okay, so then let's contrast it then with Brutus's change down Dude. right under here. And then we can... This could bring with, clarity, keep, right? Yeah, keep in mind what you just said, Matt, is I've always read that as sincere, that that little speech. But, I mean... Yeah, well, I don't know. And I don't, I don't necessarily... The, I mean, I don't need to make this clarification, I suppose. But I don't necessarily mean that he isn't sincere, but that... right. But there's still a cheapness to the way he came to it. Right. Well, and it doesn't have to be redemptive, even if it is sincere, right? Yeah. Because the, the you know, that these gods are not necessarily good. So that's yeah. um but if you keeping what you just said in mind, then let's contrast it with the next passage uh, in which Brutus makes a change of mind down in line one hundred. And he's talking here about suicide um, and his father-in-law, Cato, who died by suicide and Brutus has, um, has blamed him for it. Even by the rule of that philosophy by which I did blame Cato for the death which he did give himself, I know not how, but I do find it cowardly and vile for fear of what might fall so to prevent this time of life, arming myself with patience to stay the providence of some high powers that govern us below. So here he's saying, I'm changing my mind about suicide. Maybe it is, there is some kind of nobility in it and, and I'm considering it. So, mm-hmm. and of course he does kill himself um, in the last scene. So there's two changes. And if we're talking about chiasms, this matches I mean, just perfectly with, um, is it at its scene, act Act two, scene three with, um, when the conspirators go and they test Caesar and he refuses to, and he refuses and he gives the fixed North star speech. That's act three, scene one. Okay. So that is chiastically connected with this scene Yeah, in which, Free, right before these two speeches in which these two main characters change their minds that lead and the, both of their changes lead to their deaths, mm-hmm. right? Just as Caesar's inability, refusal to change his mind leads to his death, right? Yeah. And 
Before these two conversations, there's a group of men, including some of the conspirators and Antony Octavius, having a, a, a direct conflict in which they're all saying what they mean for the first time and, and threatening each other with force. Where, and that chiastically connects to uh, Act 3, Scene 1, when before Caesar refuses to change his mind, the conspirators come and they flatter him with indirect communication to, and try to test him and trap him. Mm-hmm. So in that scene, we have indirect communication, a character sticking to his guns over something he should probably give in on, and then that leading to death. And then we have the reversal here, but all of it leads to death. And that's the connecting point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where we get the stage littered with bodies. So is it that these omens, so really it just comes down to the omens are just always right. They're all going to die. Well, it's, it's interesting to me though that you have um, Caesar who doesn't know that his life is about to be threatened. Right. At least, at least not with certitude uh, or certainty. He has the omens. But all of these omens... Um, come to him to try to warn him through Calpurnia, through uh, natural mm-hmm. events, um, and yet he he rejects them. Ultimately, he rejects them. Here you have um, Cassius, who comes around to actually believe the omens, huh. <laughs> and so he. It's almost like he sees the writing on the wall. I'm going to die. Right. And, and it's really unnerving him. And so rather than having the luxury of being fixed like Caesar was, well, I guess you could argue that Caesar should have known he was going to die because of all the omens, but he went about his day as if that were not a possibility. Right. And so he was as, uh, what was his wording as the North star as fixed as the North star. Yes. Mm -hmm. And yet here we have Cassius, who in, in facing his death, facing battle uh, to come with Antony and Octavius, um, he now sees the limits of his own philosophy. He sees the limits of, it, he, he's not fixed. Right? right. He feels like he's left without a, a foundation. Kind of. Br- Brutus or Cassius? Uh, Cassius. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Brutus is more like, <clears throat> I'm going to withhold judgment. I mean, his answer is more like, right. I'm not going to decide yet. I'm going to yeah. wait and see what happens. But he right. says he's going to arm, arm himself with patience. Right. Yeah. 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 Arm myself with patience to stay the providence of some high powers that govern us. Coincidentally, so, the the line, the, the actual lines in, from Caesar says, but I am constant as the northern star of whose true fixed and resting quality there is no fellow in the firmament. <laughs> Which is, turns out to be true, right? Because Cassius and Brutus do not remain fixed. Right. So he is alone as the unfixed or the fixed one. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is a beautiful detail. And, and, you know, Brian, you mentioned you and I have both said this really is more of the tragedy of Brutus. Right. But it is Julius Caesar who is throughout the play, the fixed North star. He is the orienting point of this play from start to finish. Um, and yeah. everything comes back to Caesar. And, and Brutus, does he end up just being kind of a pawn in the larger imperial game, um, even though he's the true victim of this play? Right. Do you think that the in Act 4, when the ghost comes, Caesar's ghost comes and warns him 
I will see you in Philippi, which he could avoid by just not going to Philippi, right? Right. He could have, he could go with Cassius's plan and stay on top of the hill, keep the high ground and make them come to him. And mm-hmm. then he avoids the ghost. But yeah. he, um, so the ghost says, I'm going to see you, warns him, I will see you at Philippi. And then he says, then he gets, becomes courageous enough to want to talk back to the ghost, but the ghost is gone. Then he's like, oh, now I'm brave enough to talk to you or I'm ready to talk to you and you're gone. <laughs> Um, is, do you think there's a, there's a, a, a counterpoint there to his conversation with Portia? Where yes. She's like, talk to me, listen to me, let me, mm. let me help you. And then he's like, yeah, now nah, I want to talk to you, but later. And then does yes. it. And now here he wants to talk to the ghost and then can't. Right. That's good. Yes. Yeah. I do think that is true. And I also think that he chose to go to Philippi. And this is a debated point and many people have different opinions on this, but I, I think he goes, I think he already has in mind a suicide mission at Philippi. I think he knows he's not going to win this battle. He's lost. Things huh. are already falling apart. Hmm. Why would somebody debate you on that? Uh, I mean, yeah. if Heidi sees um, it. Well, no, Brian's doing the the very um, thoughtful end. Yeah, so that's a good thing. I think it's because you said Philippi and Brian's yeah. like, Philippi, I have things to say about Philippi. <laughs> well, I, I think it's, that's an interesting, it's an interesting theory. I don't know that there'd be a way to argue or, or prove it one way or the other, but right. it's certainly intriguing. Now, when, when they all meet, this is backing up a little earlier in scene one, when Octavius and Antony meet, Brutus and Cassius, it becomes clear that the time for rhetoric is at an end. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. There's no more talking to be done. In fact, that that encounter starts to draw to a close when Octavius says uh, around line 51, look, I, or line 50, look, I draw a sword against conspirators. When think you the sword goes up again? Never till Caesar's three and 30 wounds be well avenged. Hmm. or till another Caesar have added slaughter to the sword of traitors. So Octavius makes it clear what his intentions are. Yeah. Or this is not going to be done until you're dead. Um, that's the direct speech that you were talking yeah. about. That they're yes. avoiding and force. Right. I mean, rhetoric right. gives way to force in these acts. That Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's such an important lesson, isn't it? And mm-hmm. that's why we have to read Acts 4 and 5. Yeah. Because historically, people forget that rhetoric leads to actions which have consequences, which means Absolutely. the rhetoric has consequences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, which is why you have to study it. See yes. losttoolsofwriting.com for more. Well, thank you. Thank you. But uh, we're, we're now at a point in the play when Brutus and Cassius, who started out as all rhetoric, right? Granted, they were working their way up to action, they were working their way up to to kill Caesar, to actually go through with it. But the whole first half of the play is rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And now we see what happens when action has taken place and you have to deal with the consequences and rhetoric can't save you anymore. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But, and, and, and when Anthony says in line, in my line 31, um, during that parlay, Anthony says to Brutus, in your bad stroke. Well, so Brutus had says, words before blows. Is it so, countrymen? And then Octavius responds, not that we love words better as you do. <laughs> that was cold. <laughs> and then Brutus says, good words are better than bad strokes, Octavius. But then Anthony responds, in your bad strokes, Brutus, you give good words. And there's 
I mean, I, he, I think he, if that's his assessment of the speech, right? You right. killed Caesar and then you used words to justify it. And for a brief moment, people, we believed you. Yeah. You were wrong, right? And and it, that seems to me to be kind of the um, the linchpin as to why Octavius has to say what he says. I mean, he might have said it anyways, but he's right to say it. It seems like that yeah. that rhetoric w- with you with you with this lot of people, rhetoric is not trustworthy. Mm. Yeah, you you can't trust them. So you you have to you have to abandon rhetoric, go directly to direct speech, which. For them, it's going to have to be violence, right? It's going right, to have which to leads be to force. sword drawn right. against conspirators, and yeah, to force. And this unnerves right. Cassius and Brutus to the point to where this is what we've been talking about, right? Cassius is backing away from the whole philosophy mm-hmm. of life that has guided him to this point, and he's seeing that it's it's empty. Yeah, you know, right. I'm I'm starting to doubt all these things. Maybe all the omens were right, hmm. right? You know, so that's why I think there's more to Cassius here. Mm -hmm. And Brutus too is still trying to remain the firm stoic. But Heidi, the reason why I um, reacted that way, your theory about Brutus seeing this Mm -hmm. as a suicide mission, it could be that Brutus is having that same sort of epiphany to realize that his philosophy, his everything has led him to this point and he's not really sure what to do with it. Right. Well, and it's not sufficient to the task at hand that, that these, that the philosophies that they cling to, that they live by and die by, they all live and die by their philosophies. Yeah. They, and Cassius still dies as an Epicurean and Brutus still dies as a Stoic, but they are insufficient to bring any kind of human comfort at the point of death. I think that's what they're, we're coming up against. And incidentally, this line that you read uh, from Antony, Matt, in your bad strokes, Brutus, you give good words, witness the hole you made in Caesar's heart, crying long live hail Caesar. This is the only point in the play that I actually like Antony. Hmm. That he is saying something that matters here that I, I think and again, this is debated. I think this is heartfelt. I think that this, like this, there's nothing public about this scene. This this scene is just conspirators versus Octavius and Antony. There's no public, mm. you know, group right. of people around. I think this is direct communication. I think this is the true soul. And I think that Antony actually really did love Caesar. And I think this little that those lines show that. And mm. in spite of the fact that then he sees this as an expedient moment to seize power and actually just goes on a downward trajectory that blows up in his face, um, not in this play, but in Nancy and Cleopatra. But I, he is, he's portrayed by Shakespeare to be a man of passion. Mm. And, and this, I think, shows his true love for his friend. He's mad at Brutus for betraying Caesar personally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... I, that makes me actually like him a little bit here, at least. All you um, Team Anthony people out there. Yeah. There's your, there's so, your, uh, but I think that that's the now. thing. Like that Shakespeare does this so well in his history plays. This this idea of the private man and the public man and the conflict there. And if what's good for the country versus what's good for the man. And can you be a good man and a good leader at the same time? Like that. that is to a Roman, a different question than it is for a Christian. And I think in act five, we see that very much. So they cling to their philosophies, but 
there's no comfort in them. Right. And, mm. and they, but they still, you know, they still have to live and die by them. And they're trapped in some ways by their actions and their rhetoric has led to this point that there's no escape for them. Well, Brutus says as much around line 112. Mm-hmm. So Cassius has said he's starting to doubt his philosophy. Brutus has, to a lesser degree, kind of admitted the same. And then he concludes, but this same day must end the work the Ides of March began. Yeah. So they know that this is philosophy aside, doubts aside, here we are. Yeah, that's right. Um, and Brutus has essentially said he's waiting. He he won't commit to an act of suicide, at least not to Cassius at this point. Because Cassius right. asks him, are you willing, are you contented then to be led as a prisoner in a triumphal parade? But Brutus hasn't committed to suicide, but he won't be taken prisoner either, he says. What is the work that the March, Ides of March begin? Great question. That, that is a good question. Um, I think because it's certainly not the death of Mark Antony or Caesar. No, no. Um, I don't know if he means. I mean, it seems that there's essentially two options, right? He could be talking about the work of the conspirators being completed. That is a, re- a return of Rome back to the plurality of power the kind of checks and balances that the Republic had, or he could simply be embracing like a good Stoic, whatever the gods bring his way saying this path that we're on started on the Ides of March and now it reaches its completion, whatever that is. So it could be almost more of a fatalistic. Or option three, (laughs) Heidi's argument, which is that he knows that what the thing that the Ides of March actually began was the death of the conspirators. And so he's embracing his own death here. I think that's part of it. Well, and I think there's a little bit of irony here, of of dramatic irony, in that we as the readers know more. There's a meaning within the play, and then there's us as the readers who look at that, and we know that the actual work of the Ides of March was Imperial Rome, right? Which is about to be accomplished with the death of the Republican conspirators here. Mm -hmm. Now there's nothing standing in the way of the empire and that's the actual work of the Ides of March, whether it, uh, March, not Mark, that was weird, but <laughs> of the Ides of March actually brought Freudian slip. Yes, thing. I know, right? <laughs> Mark Antony. So Antony, right? Um, but the Ides of March did bring about a change in Western culture, the like of which has almost been unparalleled in history. And so we, as the, as the yeah. readers and we know that that's what we know within the play. It could mean all the things that you just said. Yeah. So I think what Heidi is saying is that any of you who are on team Antony are basically supporters of the empire. Um, and you hate Republican government, <laughs> not as in the political party, Republican government. GOP. There's just so I many fallacies in what you just said, but I will leave that to the listeners to sort through in their okay, rhetoric classes. Yeah, maybe, and logic classes. <laughs> maybe there was one. I don't know. All right. So I'm going to be the big brother here and say, come on, guys, let's get back on track. We have 15 yes. minutes, if that. So I'm going to summarize two, three, four, and five, and then we'll have to hit the high points. Two is one of the longest scenes in all of Shakespeare. Uh, Six lines, guys. Brutus sees or sends Masala to go because to go send a message because he sees that Octavius is 
vulnerable. Act three, or sorry, act five, scene three. Uh, there's this this awkward scene with Cassius where he sends Titinius to go check on uh, the results of a battle. There's a battle cry. Titinius is captured. Uh, he thinks um, Cassius then, because of that, commits suicide a la Romeo and Juliet, only to find out, he doesn't find out, but we find out that Titinius is actually meeting up with the good guys and they were cheering that they were winning. Uh, Brutus actually was winning against Octavius, it seems. And perhaps Cassius' own men were winning against Antony, I'm not sure. And then... Um, wait, wait, wait. I, I want to chime in here real quick. Sorry, big brother. But notice here, because we've talked about the chiasm, the chiastic structure, I want to yeah, bring I this up. I said you could hit the high points when we come around. <clears> but um, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, uh, but this is one. Go ahead, little brother. So... Um, the notice here that once again we have the shouts of the crowd being misunderstood. Yes, that's right? good, Brian. What just like earlier in the play, right? The shouts of the crowd, they assumed that Caesar was going to take the crown, that it was being given to him. They didn't know until later that it was being rejected, but their minds were made up by a misunderstanding of what was happening, right? So here, Cassius hears the shouts of the crowd. And thinks that Brutus has been defeated. Uh, or, I'm sorry, no, thinks that, um, who is it, Titanius has been captured, right? And that the shout of the crowd is the rejoicing of the enemy army in capturing Titanius. Right, right. When in reality, he was being surrounded to be given the good news that Brutus's army was actually winning um, against Octavius. I just saw the wrong echo. I saw the, oh, that person's dead, so I'm going to kill myself as an echo of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah, it's that too. And you saw yeah. the echo of, From oh, they're shouting, the and yeah. that's bad. And yeah, that's right. great. I love it. Um, but the Romeo and Juliet is there too. Yeah, I do. I have something to point out from this scene, or for in scene three here. Uh, it's on in line, um, it's Titanius uh, in line 59. And this goes to our conversations about night and day and the new day for Rome. Um, And this is kind of the tying off of that thread within the play here in Act 5. Titanius says, no, and this is um, him remarking on Cassius' death and his suicide. No, this was he, Masala. But Cassius is no more. Oh, setting sun, as in thy red rays thou dost sink tonight. So in his red blood, Cassius's day is set. The sun of Rome is set. Our day is gone. Clouds, dews, and dangers come. Our deeds are done. And orally, orally, you would hear the sun of Rome is set in both ways, right? Exactly. You'd hear it in, yes, exactly. Which is why when you translate Shakespeare into different languages, you miss so much. And that always makes me think of all I'm missing when I read translations of things because you wouldn't hear that sun, sun pun there. Um, That's in, in, is that that Richard? It's the second? Richard the first? No, anyways. I think there's another sun, sun, something like that at the beginning. It's also why it's important to see Shakespeare act it out, not just read it. Yes. Oh, we've had that conversation before. Yeah. We do not have time for it again. I know it's yeah. a chiastic structure. That's me. Big <laughs> of our podcast. Yes. Our podcast is chiastic structure. <laughs> okay. So after oh, not line 94, I want to say something about the high points here. Line 94 in my awesome version, Titania says, alas, speaking to Cassius, 
in his after his death. Alas, thou hast misconstrued everything. Hmm. Oh, that's yep. so good. So, I mean, pr- presumably he's talking about everything like this, the shouting, me being mm-hmm. surrounded by men, me, you know, whatever, getting off my horse. But we read this and know, no, right. Yeah. He misconstrued everything. Um, he listened to Brutus when he shouldn't have multiple times. He misconstrued the shouts of the, that you pointed out, Brian, with the yeah. offering of the crown. He misconstrued Caesar, misconstrued everything. You know, there's another one like that in scene three, all the way back in line five, that there might be even a chiasm in this scene mm-hmm. um, where Titanius is speaking and he says, Oh, Cassius, Brutus gave the word too early. Yeah. And then it's it just, ends. Yeah, it there's ends so many of those yeah. double meanings. How did Shakespeare even happen, right? There's so many of those double meanings when you're like, even the reason Cassius died is because he misinterpreted something and rushed into something that he should have thought through. All of these things are just, they, they all tie together and converge in Act Five. What if Shakespeare was actually just so sloppy of a writer that he made put all these, all of these things are actually um, contradictories? That he didn't notice, that he didn't catch. Like people think about the um, the two announcements of Portia's death, and he's so sloppy and so lazy that he didn't catch all those things. But we assume that he's brilliant. Assuming that he's brilliant, we read all of this, and then we find all these creative ways to. Put, nah, forget it. You know, actually, that's a theory that modern scholars would really latch onto. Oh, they would love that. They would oh, love yeah. it. Absolutely <laughs> yep. love it. Yeah, more than one Shakespeare, just like there's more than one Homer and yeah. Um, so can, I, yeah, if he can do anything I can't do, he must have been a fake. That, that's right. It was probably a fraud then. Um, so, so well, see, and he no. dies with the sword that killed Caesar. Mm. Um, oh, right, right. That's which is poetic point. justice, right? He was the one who started the conspiracy. He's really the wielder of the sword, and that's what he dies by. That's an objective correlative. That's very yeah. symbolic, very yeah. significant. At the end of that scene, Brutus finds Cassius dead. In the next scene, Antony kills, or Antony and his men kill or capture Brutus's men, mm-hmm. one of whom is pretending to be Brutus. Then in scene five, Brutus. Uh, is trying to get somebody to help him die. None of his men will do it until one comes along who will. That is not the office of a friend. So guys, yeah. if you ever ask me to hold the sword for your noble death, I'm going to say no. Well, here's the, no. Here's what's that is not the office of a friend. Let's Good compare the two <laughs> deaths for, for a second. I want to, I would like to compare the two deaths for a second. Mm-hmm. Cassius covers his face yeah. with a towel and then has his man run the sword through him. Yeah. Brutus has the other person hold the sword yeah. and he runs himself into the sword, right? Right. Um, the Epicurean is the Epicurean who's no longer an Epicurean is still a little bit Epicurean because mm-hmm. he does not like pain, right? The Epicurean That's right. wants all pleasure, no pain. Yeah. I don't want to see it. But Brutus, the Stoic, is like, this is the way it has to be. That's really and then good. I will yeah. do it for myself. And still taking initiative himself. Which yeah. is right. a, a big stoic principle, right? To take responsibility, to take action. Right. Well, and I want to point out my, again, my theory about his fatal flaw, so to speak, is that it is this idea of moral pride. And I think we see this in his death and his last words. Um, so in line, I'll start with um, 
line 33 in my book. Farewell to thee too, Strato. Countrymen, my heart doth joy that yet in all my life I found no man, but he was true to me. I shall have glory by this losing day, more than Octavius and Mark Antony, by this vile conquest shall attain unto. So what I think he's saying here is I still have the moral high ground. Hmm. As I'm dying, I'm dying for an ideal and my glory is greater than. So I, I am, I do not think that Brutus has come, has, has gotten past that. I think he dies as he has lived. Very Caesar-like. Even, even with lines 50 and 51 in mind? Even. Where he says, Caesar, now be still. Now be still. Build thee not with half so good a will. Well, I love that line. And I think that that, I mean, that can mean a multiplicity of things that... Uh, that um, seems to, to prove your assertion. I would say that it does. Do you think differently, Brian? Crazy man. I think there's a, <laughs> I think there's a hint of, well, in our terminology, a hint of repentance there. Yeah. He, wasn't he saying that he basically showed more goodwill toward himself by killing himself than no. the goodwill he showed to Caesar? No, I think we're Caesar? I think we're reading our own understanding of goodwill into that. I, I think what he's saying <laughs> is he is <laughs> Matt. You're so provincial. Given, <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I I think what he's realizing at the end here was it's almost an apology to Caesar, who, by the way, he has encountered multiple times now, it, even in his as a ghost. Right, so he's mm-hmm. speaking to Caesar, and again, right after the he's, sword goes, he's to him. speaking. Uh, just to speak in Christian terminology here, he's he's speaking to the other world, uh-huh. right? He's speaking to the afterlife, letting Caesar know um, that he is um, willingly taking his own life to bring this full circle, but that he did not kill Caesar out of out of malice. Um, it's almost as if he's kind of embraced, um, you know, maybe, maybe this goes back to Heidi's idea of the suicide mission. It's like, he's, he's willing to die to complete this, but I, I don't know that that represents him seeking some kind of moral high ground as much as it is following through to the end. You know, he's still, I don't know. He's, he's still committed to this, but out of the right reasons. By, think- or maybe I'm misunderstanding what you mean by moral high ground. Do you mean that in a self-righteous kind of sense? or I don't mean that necessarily connected with Caesar's death. My next question was going to be, because I, I see the same thing you do in those lines. Okay. But I still, I still think that Brutus dies seeking moral glory like he dies wanting to be right he dies with this i shall have glory by this losing day more than octavius and mark antony by this vile conquest shall attain unto you so i think he's still saying i'm doing this out of right motives and they're not and i think i I agree with you there yeah and i think he needs that i think that's yes i think that's like brutus's driving force is to be writer like the rightest I know that's not a word, by the way, but I'm using it intentionally. 
Like I did this for Rome. I did this because I yeah. believe I might, and I'm an idealist. I believe I'm a stoic. Like I did this out of rightness. And I think his claim to that exists, even if that that's still his like driving need in life. And I, so I'm not sure if I see him as repentant at his death yeah. and truly well, understanding that that's pride. Well, let me, let me say, uh, just uh, add a couple of things in here real mm-hmm. quick. Um, one, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't mm-hmm. know that Brutus is Brutus is dying, believing that what he has done was right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. But I will say this: something that's really interesting to me that I think we have to to note here quickly is that Brutus is now, in that sense, dying from his own ambition which is what he just what he killed caesar for right? right so if if we see um as you're saying brutus as being absolutely committed to gaining glory to doing the right thing to being known as the one who was the rightest you know mm-hmm. <laughs> in right. these circumstances then isn't it brutus who was ambitious yes is that what you're getting at? I, I think I'm looking at it in terms of whether or not he's come through a full a, a full arc in the narrative that he gets to oh, the point of yeah. metanoia in the Socratic sense. And I would say no. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with you there, but I'm I'm still kind of holding out. I want to hold on to that ambiguity that Shakespeare's brought with us through the whole. Brought with him through the whole play. Yes, right. Is that I still agree with that. Don't know that. Yes, uh, he wants to be right, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Right. Well, and then I mean, it can't be a bad thing. We all want to be morally right too. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But but with that ambiguity, if he does in fact repent, then somehow the question's answered. He was wrong, right? So so what we what we're left with then is either an un a wrong and unrepentant Brutus or a right and, and maintaining his rightness Brutus. Exactly. So here's where we end. So it has to be that way, right? The full, beautiful ambiguity, right? That we say this is a humanist play as well as a political play and that everything still gets tied off. All of the threads get resolved and yet we still are left with the ambiguous nature yeah. of this of this act in history and what it means to be a character involved in it. And that's what I love about Shakespeare's history plays is he never lets the 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 people he never uses it as a morality tale. And he right. never ever allows us to get away from the fact that these were people that did this. Even though they're fictionalized, none of us will ever think of Brutus as just a cipher in history. He's always going to be a man to us because of Shakespeare. That's true. And that's what I think is so magnificent about this play. I have, if we have time, I have one question about the very end. Okay. Um, because Antony gives his closing lines mm-hmm. and basically says, Brutus was the no- noblest Roman. That Even though Antony has told us elsewhere that he thinks what, what Brutus did was wrong, Brutus was the only one who did it for the right reasons. Yeah. This was a man, he says, right. wh- which is not unlike... Our, 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 you know, behold the man um, from mm-hmm. scripture, right? Then mm-hmm. Octavius basically says, yeah, 
you're right. And so let's let us use him with all respect and rights of burial and then provides him with all of these honors. What I don't understand in this moment is, is, is Anthony telling us something about Brutus that he is kind of the almost good guy, um, that there's a rightness and a wrongness to it. And then, and then is, is Anthony's judgment to be accepted, hmm. but also what why why are they taking the enemy and repackaging his story and then bringing him back to the public and to the people and saying hey let's celebrate this guy as a hero you know the one that we just chased down and mur- and killed or you know caused his death why 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 do romans make bad guys good guys i don't understand was well, part of their identity as romans to recognize nobility and bravery mm-hmm. and honor. Um, but I think in this sense, Antony and Octavius are trying to do exactly what Julius Caesar did. Julius Caesar pursued Pompey all the way to Egypt uh, to, uh, according to Caesar's words, to reconcile the differences between the two of them. And he wept when Pompey's head was presented to him in a basket. But Pompey was brought back and buried, not as an enemy of Rome or as an enemy of Caesar, but as an as a Roman. Mm-hmm. So there is this tradition that at death, the differences are put aside, hmm. um, and you recognize the nobility where you could find it. And this is the ending here is so perfect. Mm-hmm. One because Caesar or Caesar Shakespeare understood the Romans, mm-hmm. and he shows it. But two, because it maintains that tension, Brutus's last words leave us thinking, I don't know if he, he could be repentant. He could be yeah. clinging to the idea that he did the right thing. Mark, Mark Antony and Octavius seem to be indicating he was a noble man. He was a good man. He's the best of Romans. He deserves all of these honors. But what he did was wrong. So it's as if we have this tension still maintained even now at the end when the enmity is done, there's not, there's still not resolution. There's still the confusion that we're left with of, you know, at best they say Brutus was a good man. Um, he did the wrong thing for all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Right. So well, it's a really good about. ending too. I mean, yeah. just in terms of how to close this play, that uh, to your point, Brian, this the idea of the, this the Romanness is very clear here, and then also it's just a good ending. It's the same ending as Hamlet, exactly the same, which is Hamlet dies, um, and then he gets carried off by Fortinbras by the enemy, the the one who's going to take his throne, right? And he gets, but he gets praised. And then carried off. So it has this kind of um, uh, overtones of martyrdom or sainthood, um, and uh, which has a stirring ending. But then it also, and this I think is really important to the play, uh, it, it also has along with it a cyclical sense of now we're just back where we started from, right? Hmm. Um, that these that their enemies are killing each other, and then someone's going to take power again. In, even in praising their enemy as he died, which is exactly what they did to Caesar in Act Three. Yeah. So. Um, oh right, right. 
Yeah. Yeah, So it has a a resolved ending, but also kind of a dot, 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 a cyclical nature to it. It's interesting because in act one, you don't, you aren't told that he brought Pompey back as Mm -hmm. a hero. You're told that he brought Pompey back as a, as tribute. Right. And, and he's given a try. But, but you're getting that from his opponents of Caesar, right? Because opponents right. of Caesar's who are saying that. So fair. Um, but but if we don't know that history, then you know that we don't know that. So then so then there's maybe a foreshadowing, right? If you're talking about the cyclical nature of it, Heidi, that right. they're gonna bring Brutus back as a hero, but to the supporters of Brutus and the opponents of Octavius and Antony, it's gonna feel to those people like they're bringing him back as tribute. Right. And, and then there's going to be the, the, pot, the potential for another cycle of right. bloodshed. So, yeah. Um, okay. Thank you. The act five. That was fun. That was good. Um, I know. I can't believe it's over. I want to keep I, talking about it. I, I hate that we have <laughs> wasted the ending there, but um, we'll get some questions posted, I guess, for the next episode. And hopefully we'll be able to do a quick Q and a episode if we get enough questions and we'll get to have one more conversation about Julius Caesar before we're done it's all until done. they bring us back together for another play someday maybe hopefully okay Heidi thanks for joining us um, uh, thanks guys you are a wonderful contributor to any Shakespeare discussion oh um, you guys are the best <laughs> Brian thanks for joining us um, you were next to me <laughs> thank you Matt for those kind words <laughs> That's a fact. And thank you, Self, for being here. You were a treat as <laughs> always. Job, yeah, right. that's right. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.